I want to continue with the same theme that I spoke to the night before last. This idea of uh, starting all over again, or what in Zen might be called uh, the beginner's mind. And in particular, I want to go back to the Buddha's own awakening. We touched on this last time, how he described his waking up, not in terms of coming to, to know some great truth, but rather in terms of shifting perspective from that of a fixed place to one in which he was responding to an open field of contingent events rising and passing away, one conditional upon the next, this groundless ground. What's striking about this uh, language is that he doesn't privilege any particular thing as being somehow the, um, the special object that he woke up to. He doesn't use words like emptiness. He doesn't use words like the unconditioned. He doesn't use words like the true mind. But rather, he simply comes into another relationship with the entire field of phenomena, of Dhamma. All of them having, as it were, um, an equal taste. One, any one of them not being specially privileged in any way at all. But from this movement from place to ground, he then finds himself in a situation where he needs to speak. The description of the shift from place to ground occurs in the privacy of his own experience beneath the body tree. <clears throat> But he gets to a point where he realizes that somehow he has to translate this uh, principle into a form of life, into a way of being in this world. And this leads him to go to Benares, to the Deer Park at Sarnath, and deliver his first a discourse called the, the Turning of the Wheel of Dhamma. And at the conclusion of that discourse, he gives um, another summary, or, or definition almost, of what it was for him to have woken up, to have become uh, the Buddha. And he says, as long as my mind was not clear, about the reality 
of these four truths in all these different ways, I could not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its gods and men, its ascetics and priests, its celestials and devas. Only when my understanding was clear about these four truths in all of these ways could I claim to have such an awakening. So his, his awakening is now <clears throat> expanded into uh, four truths. And when he says that he understands these truths in all these ways, he's referring to the specific way in which each truth, the first truth is that of suffering, the second is that of craving, the third is that of stopping, and the fourth is that of the path. Only when he had come to relate to these four truths, each in a way appropriate to it, could he say that he was fully awake. So his awakening, therefore, again is quite clearly not about anything we could call the truth, with a big T, or the unconditioned, or the divine. But rather his awakening was a process. It was, in a way, a further extension of that shift from place to ground. He then describes in terms of how he has embraced suffering, how he has let go of grasping or craving, how he has experienced for himself a stopping, and how he has created a path or a way of life, the Eightfold Path. So once again we see the, con the, the same movement at work, that awakening is not some state, but rather it is a way of engaging with life as it arises in each moment, as it passes away. It's, how, it's as much to do with how we respond to our experience as it is to do with the particular object or content of that experience. What does it mean then to embrace suffering? This is where, in a way, the process begins. Embrace suffering. The, the Pali literally says, Dukkha Parinya, fully know suffering. But I like to translate it as embrace. Now, to embrace suffering in some ways, is counter-instinctive. When we experience suffering or pain, the mind's habitual tendency is to step back, is to shy away, is to avoid, is somehow not to go into the heart of that discomfort or anguish or anxiety 
whatever it might be, but rather to spin off into a, a fantasy or to reach for some kind of, of theory or belief that might help explain the suffering. But to actually confront it, to actually uh, pay attention to it with the totality of one's awareness, to embrace it with one's body, with one's mind, with one's emotions. That is where this path begins. It means, I feel, to allow the possibility of a radical kind of openness to life. On the one hand, to still one's attention, and in that stillness to open yourself to the suffering and the pain that may be in your own body, the suffering and the pain that may be in your own mind, the suffering and the pain that is all around us, the suffering of the world, the suffering of those close to us, the suffering that we witness each time we open a newspaper, each time we switch on the TV. Now we might say, of course, that, you know, we... You know, of course we're aware of these things. So what does it mean when the Buddha turns this into not just a having information or knowledge about or being attentive to one's own discomforts, but to make that into a practice, to make that into a, a kind of discipline, something you do, something that you consciously and deliberately Turn your attention towards. And I think in many ways, whether we're practicing mindfulness, whether we're practicing uh, Zen, in both cases, the practice starts at this point with a willingness to embrace the condition in which we are now. So that when we ask, what is this? We are, in fact, opening ourselves to the suffering of the world. We are choosing to simply be with what's happening. The word suffering is, in some ways, a poor translation of the word dukkha, but I can't come up with a better one, really. But dukkha or suffering it refers to far more than just those um, feelings or sensations we have that are overtly painful. There's something about suffering, about dukkha, that concerns the, the poignancy of life itself. The fact that when we sit or when we walk, um, we're not just paying attention to neutral facts, but everything we attend to is shot through 
with a certain feeling tone. It feels a certain way. It's not something we only know with the mind, but something we, we sense with the body, with the emotions. When we are aware of the body, we're aware of, of everything that's going on from the top of the head to the tips of our toes to our pressure of our body against the cushion. We're aware of, of the background of maybe a certain worry we have, a certain anxiety, a certain sense perhaps that we're not, we're not practicing as well as we should, a certain sense of anticipation as to what will follow. Dukkha is a term that tries to capture that most intimate texture of our experience. Something so difficult really to put into words. But that crucial felt sense of being alive, which entails, of course, being momentary, being subject to the vagaries of the environment we happen to be in at a given moment, subject to the vagaries of our body, of our minds, of our thoughts, of our feelings. So the primary act of meditation is to uh, begin to sensitize ourselves to uh, the, the, the fabric, the tissue of life itself, of our, uh, of, of our most immediate, perhaps the most ineffable, the most difficult to put into words. That feeling we have that is uh, so uh, acutely private and personal that we have no way, perhaps, of really communicating to another, however close that person may be to us, however, however intimate we are. It's that quality of our experience that we can never quite name. It's not necessarily painful. It's neither necessarily pleasurable. It's the kind of stuff of life itself, that curious sense we have of being a sentient creature, of being a creature, of being a being who has been thrown into this world without, as far as we know, having ever asked to be here. We find ourselves in this reality. And the only certainty that we have as to what will be our fate is that one day, at a time that we cannot predict or foresee, we will be expelled from this world. We will die. So when we become close and um, very much in touch with that sense of our, of our being, we're also, in that very moment, alert to its utterly transient 
quality. It's here now, and yet the experience we had just 10 seconds ago has gone forever, never to be repeated. We're here now, but what will occur in the next moments, we as yet have no idea at all. And yet there's a, a curious continuity of texture. This dull, uh, perhaps rather opaque sense of being who we are. And by paying attention in this way, in some ways we go beyond the capacities of language to categorize and to define and to make sense and to rationalize. We're up against the, uh, the nitty-gritty of life itself. So the Buddha's first uh, step towards waking up is to embrace that. To embrace that without hesitation, without uh, any conditions attached, but to open ourselves to that. And as we do so, as we go more and more deeply into this ineffable heart of what it means to be alive, when we accept that, when we as it were, say yes to that. We begin to uncover another way of being with it, a way in which we're no longer at the command of our likes and our dislikes, what we want and what we don't want. We notice very much in meditation how we prefer, the mind seems to prefer, uh, to indulge in certain um, strategies of acquisition, of getting things, be it a material object or be it enlightenment, doesn't make much difference really. Or else we get involved in strategies of evasion, of not wanting, of rejecting, of wanting things to be other than they are. And this attraction, aversion, becomes the sort of diastolic, systolic rhythm of our restless minds. We run after one thing, and then we try to dispel something else, or remove ourselves from something else. And this is the the struggle, in a way, that describes so much of what goes on in a sitting in meditation. One moment we're totally focused on what it is to be here. The next thing we know, maybe many minutes have elapsed, but we catch ourselves at the end of some long, rather discombobulated train of thought or imagery and then we come back and then we're here again and we're totally present and then the next thing we know we've gone off somewhere else now this movement of um, 
of evasion, this movement of, um, of alienation, in a sense, um, is very much what I feel the Buddha means by this idea of craving or grasping. We're always somehow wanting something else. We're not willing, really, to accept our lives for what they are as they are unfolding in this very moment. It's not enough, or it's something we don't like, or it's something we'd prefer was not happening. And the, and, and, and the first reaction we have, which we see quite clearly in meditation, is how the mind races off elsewhere, how we flee to the consolation of a fantasy or a daydream or a memory or a plan. Now, we often hear this expression that we should let go of grasping, let go of craving. But that is easier said than done. In fact, how do you let go? How do you not grasp? I don't think it's actually something that you can volitionally choose to do any more than you can volitionally not think. In keeping with the Buddha's principle of, of contingency, that this, when this exists, that comes to be. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. All we can do is to create the conditions whereby that craving, grasping, clinging, clutchy mind will no longer have a base on which to operate from. And I think that what the structure of the Four Noble Truths tells us is that when we fully embrace suffering, in all of its enormity and complexity, that is the condition that allows that craving and clinging and grasping to fall away of its own accord. We undermine the rationale for grasping. When we realize that the world is contingent, impermanent, almost inevitably shot through with some kind of, of suffering, then we'll just give up this uh, futile attempt to try to control and manipulate experience in such a way that it leads us to this permanent well-being that we so deeply want. And the paradox is, that the only people probably who are truly happy in this world are those who fully know the fact that this world cannot provide happiness. As, the, as craving of grasping begin to fall away, we also move more and more to the possibility of a kind of deep, inner stillness. We're able to be 
with the cascade of events and happenings and impressions and sensations and thoughts and so on without being tossed around by them, without being pushed and pulled here and there, but rather to be able to witness what's going on from a still point, what Eliot calls the still point of the turning world. So when we find those moments at which, in a strange but deeply um, real way, a certain grasping, clutching mind has stopped, and it might be only lasting for a few moments, but there are moments, not just in formal meditation or, or, or practice, but also in daily life, when we suddenly are aware that we do not have to cling, we do not have to hate, we do not have to try to push something away or pull something towards us. We can just be fully aware fully present, but totally still. Moments at which all of that frenzied activity have come to a stop. But that is not the end of the practice or the end of the path. That is actually where the path begins. So in the structure of the four truths, the Buddha says... Embrace suffering, let go of grasping, experience its stopping, and then create a path. In other words, then respond to that experience of life from a perspective which is not dictated by our wants and our hates and our fears and our desires but is coming from a place in which those uh, forces have either stopped or if they haven't actually stopped we're no longer bewitched by them and that is what allows uh, uh, an opening and a path is essentially an opening to another way of being in this world. And in this sense, what the Buddha is uh, teaching, or the aim of the teaching, is not nirvana, but actually the engagement with the path itself. Now that's very much a, a summary of how I understand uh, the Buddha's awakening. Entirely processual. But those of us who are coming, say, from a Zen tradition will perhaps wonder, well, why don't we hear about suffering and grasping and craving in Zen? It's certainly not the main uh, teaching. It's there in the background. So how do we bring the Buddha's awakening in his own words into some sort of um, 
relation to the experiences of awakening that we find in Zen. I think it's often felt that these traditions are talking almost in different languages. But I don't think that's actually the case. When we ask, what is this? What we're asking about the this is uh, sometimes uh, defined in the classical Zen texts as the great matter of birth and death. In other words, dukkha. When, when, when we say this, we're talking about the totality of our experience now. And that totality is inseparable from the fact of having been born and the fact of having to die. What is this, if we start to think of it in this way, is about embracing suffering. It's about being totally open to our birth and our death. I think we can also see this embracing of suffering in the way in which the Zen teacher responds to the dilemma of the student. When Hui Zhang comes to see Hui Neng, and Hui Neng says, where have you come from? I've come from Mount Song. But what is this thing? How did it get here? I think in that moment, Hui Neng is embracing the dukkha, the suffering of Hui Zhang. And he's allowing Hui Zhang likewise to embrace his own birth and death. What is this thing? How did it get here? It stops the mind of the young monk. He's suddenly confronted, he's suddenly totally open to the dilemma of what it is to be, to exist. And that's where his practice then begins. That's where it then goes. Otherwise, if we think of what is this Without that context, it could it can seem rather it can seem rather um, uh, cold, kind of intellectual, cerebral. But I feel that the question "What is this?" is actually very much about an emotional openness and embrace of our condition, of our human condition. But let me try to illustrate this with a, another fairly famous koan that concerns Bodhidharma, who's the Indian monk who purportedly brought the Chan tradition to China in about the 6th century. I mentioned last time that the monk Hui Zhang had been on Mount Song. And Mount Song was where Bodhidharma had spent, the text say, nine years, staring at a wall. And the story goes that another monk, 
called uh, Hui Ko, who subsequently becomes the, the, the second patriarch in the Chinese tradition. Bodhidharma is considered the first, Hui Ko the second, Seng Zan the third, and so on. Hui Neng, by the way, is the sixth. There's a story that Hui Ko, one winter, when it was so cold that there was snow on the ground, he went up to the cave where Bodhidharma was sitting in meditation. And this, is, this uh, moment is captured in a very famous uh, scroll painting uh, from the Tang period, in which Hueco is depicted standing in the snow, um, holding his left arm, which he had cut off, and it's dripping blood onto the snow. Now, I don't quite know how one would actually do that. But the, um, but the point uh, is to show that this is a man in a desperate situation. He's willing to cut off his arm to show his sincerity. And again, we shouldn't take this too uh, symbolically. When, um, when I lived in Korea, in the monasteries, the monks have to do military service. There's no way out. If you're a, sometimes when we did the seshin in Korea, uh, one day the monks would say, oh, we have to go for military training today. And so they would change out of their robes and put on fatigues and run off and play soldier. Some of the monks, though, refused to do that. And the way they uh, got out of it was by... Uh, cutting off their trigger finger. We knew a monk called Iltasunin, who, um, to avoid military service, put his hand on a block of wood and took an axe and just went whack. All of his fingers were cut off. Um, I, I met another monk once who, who had taken his trigger finger... <clears throat> wrapped it in cloth, tied a piece of wire around the base, dipped the cloth in oil, and then offered it to the Buddha as a lamp. Now, one might argue that this is somewhat extreme behavior, but you cannot but be moved by the sincerity and the uh, conviction and the dedication of these men. Um, I've had very ambivalent feelings about this. I thought it was a, you know, going way too extreme. But on the other hand, would I do something comparable to, to, to keep my, my vows, basically? So the story of Wei Ko, to me, has more power because monks will do that. People, not just Buddhists, but of all traditions, will take extreme measures to um, keep true to what they most deeply and passionately value. But the point with Hui Ko is that this is a man in pain. Whether or not he actually cut off his arm doesn't really matter. This is a man in pain. This is Dukkha. 
And Hueco then, standing in the snow, calls out to Bodhidharma, who's in the cave. He says, Master, please put my mind to rest. That's how it's usually translated. The word mind, though, in Chinese is shin. And shin means as much heart or soul as it does mind. Mind has a certain cerebral quality to it. Put my mind to rest, we think of as perhaps, you know, resolve this difficult intellectual problem I've got. But we might just as well translate it as put my heart to rest, put my soul to rest. And Bodhidharma replies, bring me your mind, bring me your heart, and I'll put it to rest for you. So Hueco goes off somewhere, and some days later, he comes back to the cave, and he says, I've looked everywhere for my mind, I've looked everywhere for my heart, but I cannot find it. And Bodhidharma says, you see, I've put it to rest for you. (laughs) Now, what's going on here, I think, captures exactly the same trajectory as embrace suffering, don't crave, let go of grasping, stop, and a path will open up. It's obviously a very different kind of of language, but I think the process that's being described is pretty much the same. In both instances, we start with a total openness to suffering. My mind, my heart is troubled. My heart is not at rest. Please set it to rest. And Bodhidharma's strategy is to say, go deeply into the heart of that unrest. Bring me your heart. Bring me your mind which entails that for the monk in question, he has to find his heart, find his mind, find that pain that is driving him. And yet as he goes deeply into his experience, he can find nothing on which he can somehow put a label as that thing being my mind, my heart. A similar idea we find in Huineng, the sixth patriarch, who's said to have had his initial awakening when he was still a young lad. He'd been out with his grandmother gathering wood in the local forest to sell on the marketplace. They were very poor. 
And he was completely uneducated, just a young farming lad. And as his granny and he are coming back from the forest one day, there's a monk sitting at the side of the road, and he's reciting the Diamond Sutra. And as Huaneng and Granny walk by, they hear the words, where the mind has nowhere to rest. And at that moment, Huaneng had some kind of awakening, where the mind has nowhere to rest. Later, when Huaneng came to give the teachings that are found in what's called the Platform Sutra, he asks rhetorically, what is Zazen, or Chan, sitting meditation? He says, he says Zazen, or Chan, is where the mind has nowhere to rest. It's not about, he doesn't go into posture and doing certain exercises, but Zazen is where the mind has nowhere to rest. Or if we think of the resolution that Hui Zhang has to the question, what is this? Remember, after eight years, he comes back to Hui Neng, and Hui Neng says, okay, then what is this? And Hui Zhang says, to say it is like something misses the point. Now, all of this is pointing very much to a kind of stopping, a kind of reaching somewhere in one's own experience where one is no longer driven by the restlessness, driven by this craving, this grasping to, to have some kind of conviction or certainty, some fixed place, as the Buddha described it. Because so often what we do in meditation is a kind of internal um, repetition of what we do in the world. Rather than seek something that we think will make us happy out there, which we might have spent a lot of time doing, we think that Dharma or Zazen or meditation is about simply changing direction and finding something in here, something spiritual, that is going to give us what we want. And so we look for the true mind, or emptiness, or the Buddha nature. And we, try and, we try and grab hold of that. But as we may discover, there's nothing within, there's nothing without, that we can hold on to. The world, as the Buddha describes, is one of utter contingency, of change. Everything is slipping away like water. Try to grab it, it's like trying to pick up from a pool uh, a handful of water and somehow keeping it in the palm cupped in your hand. It'll slip between your fingers. That the kind of uh, insight into reality that the Buddha had is one in which there is no, um, that there is nothing within such a world as this that we can hold on to in any final way at all. 
Everything will shift and change. There's no place to rest. And paradoxically, the one who knows that, the one who's experienced that there is no place to rest, has perhaps found the most profound resting place. Again, it's the same paradox we saw before. So we see a similar movement. We start with opening ourselves totally to our suffering, going into that unflinchingly in such a way that our whole relationship to our life begins to change. Those habits of grasping and clinging and clutching and manipulating and wanting this thing and that thing is realized to be a fruitless endeavor. You can keep going on that way forever and you'll never come to any end of it. This is sangsara, this endless going round and round in circles. And when you know that, then you find the possibility of stopping, stopping all of that frenzy. And from that stopping, you can then give voice or give form or give action to or in response to the world as it's appearing for you right now. And this, again, I think is very well conveyed in Zen. That the, the resolution of the koan is an act. It's a statement, or sometimes it's a physical gesture. It's about doing something. I feel that Buddhism essentially is a doctrine of action. But action arrived at and action initiated from a radically different ground. In fact, from a ground rather than a place. And so perhaps we can see with these examples um, that whether we're practicing Zen, whether we're practicing in a more formal uh, Indian Theravada type tradition, seems to me to be very much the same. That the difference lies in style, in strategy, in language. Um, we have a few minutes, if anyone would like to ask a question. Yes? 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 Um, what, um, to what extent do you think the practice of ethics contributes towards awakening? <coughs> Um, well, it's a bit like the... the uh, it's a kind of necessary framework. Um, I don't think one could pursue this practice if one was going around hurting people and stealing and abusing and lying. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's incompatible that from, purely from the point of view of having a foundation for a practice, one needs to be coming from some place of ethical integrity. Otherwise, one's life is somehow too unbalanced, too conflicted, too full of maybe moral ambiguity and guilt. 
And also, as we've probably seen in our own practice, when, you know, if you do have unfinished moral business, that that very soon rears its head when you start sitting. When you, when you just, you know, you sit and you just confront what you are, that doesn't mean you only get what's going on now, but you open up a space in yourself for everything, for the, for, for the consequences of everything you have done. I mean, how much time have we spent in meditation in uh, experiencing, say, remorse or guilt or regret? And how much does that contribute or help to the stilling of the mind? It often becomes something that you know, we can hardly shake off. We have to somehow deal with that before we can really steady and still the mind. So ethics, I think, is um, a, a, a necessary condition for, uh, for the kind of practice we're doing. Uh, without an ethical integrity, our foundation will be shaky. So that, I think, is uh, at least one way of, of seeing how ethics would, would come to play. And again, we, we operate these retreats in the context of the five precepts. We make that quite clear. Uh, and that's not just because we want to be good people. Well, hopefully we do. But it's a reminder that, the, the, that uh, uh, sila is a precondition for samadhi which is a precondition for panya. In other words, morality, concentration, and intelligence are like, as my Zen teacher said, uh, three, uh, three legs of a tripod. If you lack one, you won't somehow have the, uh, the necessary preconditions for pursuing uh, this kind of path. Uh, this gentleman and then... Yes? Can you, say, can you say a little bit more about embracing suffering? So where, where does embracing suffering end and penance and self-mortification <laughs> begin? And I'm thinking of the, the Buddhist path also, the life of this age. Yeah. So, so where, where is <clears throat> embracing suffering between these two extremes? Well, the difference between uh, Dukkha Parinya embracing suffering and uh, self-mortification as it's usually translated or self-punishment is that in self-punishment you deliberately inflict suffering upon yourself in embracing suffering you simply open to what is happening you don't you don't somehow start you know getting the incense stick and burning your wrist um that would be the difference, whether in fact you are uh, um, deliberately seeking to cause yourself pain in order to be able to achieve some maybe transcendence or some detachment or some equanimity from it. Um, the, the, the dukkha the Buddha is speaking of is simply the dukkha that is, uh, that is shot through the whole of life. Um, we don't have to go uh, 
sort of create any more for ourselves. Um, it's, it's a way of saying, see what's going on. And remember the dukkha also includes what the Buddha calls sukha, happiness, is also dukkha, for the reason that it doesn't last. So when it says embrace dukkha, it doesn't mean just pay attention to the painful bits. This is why the word is so terribly difficult to translate. Perhaps we shouldn't try and translate it and just call it dukkha. But dukkha is talking really about what it, what it feels like to live in a contingent world, in a changing world, in a world that we cannot predict, in a world that we cannot control, in a world that at some point will eject us. What is the core feeling? What does it feel like to be in that kind of place? That, I think, gets to the, in a sense, the core of this word dukkha. So it's not necessarily painful, but it's somehow disquieting. It's somehow um, unreliable, undependable, um, ambiguous, uh, unpredictable. All of that falls under dukkha. Does that mean like embrace life? Yeah, that's what it boils down to. It means embrace life. It means just whatever life throws up for you the first step should be say yes to that. That doesn't mean to say if you experience horrible injustice, you just say, yes, it's okay, it's life. But the point, you see, is if you don't embrace that and say, that is the reality right now, how can I respond to that in a way that's not reactive? Just a kick, and that's our normal thing. If we encounter something like injustice, we go, that's terribly unfair. And we get on a high horse and we start campaigning against it, which might be a good thing. But the question is, can we be with that at such a, in such a way that we tap within ourselves a deeper kind of responsiveness, one that begins to happen when the the grasping, clinging, liking, not liking, hating, fearing mind dies down. Can we live our lives unconditioned by greed and hatred and delusion? And so the first step to getting to that place in which those forces are not driving us is to be able to be totally open to be able to be totally present with what in fact is happening now rather than jump to a foregone conclusion as to how it should be. So in other words, it's, 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 a, it's, it's an approach that brings us to um, another source of action, another way of, uh, of uh, se comporter, of, of behaving, of, of conducting ourselves in this world. Mm-hmm. It was a tremendous gift. So, alongside the 
that knowledge of suffering and wanting to find their way out. Mm. There's also tremendous appreciation. Mm -hmm. And there is that Zen saying, samsara is nirvana. So mm -hmm. I appreciate the existence of suffering, appreciate wanting to look at it unflinchingly, uncompromisingly, to deal with it. But at the same time, this ephemeral impermanent uh, is, is so one tremendous gift. And it seems that this emphasis is more in Zen than the earlier, slightly pessimistic. Mm -hmm. you know, life sucks, basically, <laughs> suffering, and we, we meditate in order to get out of that. But it's also, it's also, you know, it's uh, like Tom Waits would say, it's a sad and beautiful world. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, see, I never actually said in everything just now that we want to get out of it. I, 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 I reject all of that idea, even in early Buddhism. I think this idea of the world is a terrible place, we must get out of it. That is simply the worldview of ancient India. It's the ascetic tradition of ancient India. It's certainly very present in all forms of Buddhism. Uh, particularly Theravada Buddhism. But I feel that all of that ancient worldview is no longer of any relevance to us. So I want to discard that. Uh, so I deliberately didn't say we want to get out of suffering. Not at all. Um, what I didn't go into, though, was that my own understanding is that as we open ourselves to dukkha, and again, we do need to expand, expand the term beyond over pain. We also come to a much deeper appreciation of the beauty of life. Uh, to me, the two are inseparable. I think, um, uh, the, the, I mean, Zen is very good at that. I mean, I think it's the, the Zen take on um, impermanence, for example, tends to evoke a kind of an aesthetic appreciation. You know, there's haikus with the f autumn leaves and, and the cherry blossoms and so on. All of this is very much about impermanence. It's about dukkha. And yet it's able to see that that is also the source of the world's beauty, the source of the world's sublimity. And it's true that in early Buddhism you don't find that language. And this is where I think that... Um, uh, East Asian tradition can actually uh, shed a whole other light on dukkha, paradoxically allowing us to experience dukkha as a way in to an appreciation of the extraordinary, I don't even think beauty is the right word, uh, sublimity. Um, that life is an extraordinary opportunity and, as you say, a gift. I don't think that that's an exclusively uh, Zen uh, take, um, although it is true that that tradition has given particular emphasis to it. But I feel that, in practice, if you do this opening to suffering... Uh, letting go of this, this clinging, graspy mind, stopping, being mindful and present of whatever is happening, that brings with it unavoidably an aesthetic experience, uh, a sense of, of, of the world's 
the, the fact that everything only lasts for a moment uh, is extremely poignant. Uh, when you become attuned to uh, dukkha or anitta, anicca, impermanence, um, this is not a kind of depressing or pessimistic outlook at all. It can be read that way if you are locked into the mindset of ancient Indian asceticism, which much Buddhism is, I agree. But if one, one, once you suspend that mindset and you just follow those practices, I feel it takes you to just the same place. That, that is my sense of that. Quickly, then we have to start. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, Yasmin, yes. Um, I find that just with time and with practice, um, the, the, the kind of sensibility, what I think we cultivate on a retreat like this is a sensibility. And um, initially it might be quite difficult to transfer that into a busy, hectic, working situation. But if one is committed to that sensibility, then over time, I think you'll find that it begins to infuse into everything. It may not be there as intensely as it might be on a retreat, but it begins to be more and more a feature of how you are in the world with others. It may not be a self-conscious thing. I think when we start any kind of, of spiritual practice, there's a long period in which it's all terribly self-conscious. We're self-consciously meditators or Buddhists or something. But once the novelty and the newness of it begins to fade, when we get used to it, in other words, when that sensibility becomes not so much an exception, a place we get to on retreat, but it becomes more a kind of uh, a felt sense, a kind of second nature, then I think you'll find that um, it begins to feed into uh, pretty much everything you do. Um, I don't think time has got much to do with it, I'm afraid. Um, I think it... Well, okay, I've got an art. It takes, it takes until the end of your life. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.